Welcome to Stories from Glasgow, a podcast all about the arts and humanities with Dr. Sia Jackson. Each episode, we'll be bringing you the latest insights, news and discoveries from researchers and academics at the University of Glasgow's College of Arts. Hello and welcome back to Stories from Glasgow podcast. I hope you are well and I am delighted to have you back here with us again today. I am joined by Professor Willie Maley and we have got a bit of a change of pace as we delve into the realms of fandom. Willie is quite easily the biggest fan here at the University of Glasgow of Diana Gabaldon's best-selling novel series Outlander as well as the Associated Stars television series. If you're already an Outlander fan, this one is for you, but I have absolutely no doubt that if you have yet to encounter Diana Gabaldon's time-travelling doctor and the kilted Highlander heartthrob that is Jamie Fraser, you will feel inspired to either pick up a book or tune into the series. My name is Willie Mealy. Professor of English Literature at the University of Glasgow, where I've been teaching for 29 years now. Could you maybe tell us a little bit about well, why Outlander and what it is that first drew you to it? Well, I've always had an interest in both fantasy writing and the historical novel from Sir Walter Scott onwards right up to Dorothy Dunnett and, and beyond. For me, it started with the television series that got me into the novel, so that was the, the trigger for me. So in 2014, when Outlander came along, broadcast in the back of the independence referendum, it seemed very timely and interesting. It was a period of history that interested me. I worked mainly in the 17th century, so it was a bit later, but it was a period that interested me that I knew was enormously important. So I started to engage with it. It was a Scottish theme, it was historical so that was my beginning, if you like. Reading the novel since, I realised how much richer and subtler they are. And I'm sure there were a lot of Outlander fans, obviously, who came to the TV series after a long journey through two decades living with the books. I've got to ask, do you have a preference for the novels over the series now that you've engaged with both? Definitely the novels. Definitely, without a doubt. And I've just finished yeah. the latest novel, Go Tell the Bees That I'm mm-hmm. Gone. And I think it's, I mean, 1,300 pages or, or more just so incredibly rich and detailed and I, and I love that kind of detail I read a lot of prose non-fiction of the 17th century a lot of pamphlets a lot of interdisciplinary literature and I think just the depth and detail of the world the world building that Diana Gabaldon does is just astonishing obviously Walter Scott is a kind of a benchmark but I think there's incredible mm-hmm. subtlety here and there's a different kind of perspective the world of Outlander is incredibly rich and Diana Gabaldon touches upon so many different themes and issues throughout the course of the series. If we have some listeners who perhaps have yet to encounter Outlander in either of its forms, can you tell us a bit about some of the different things that they can expect to find that Diana Gabaldon explores in Outlander? Well, I suppose it addresses issues like the, the fallout or aftermath of Culloden with these Jacobite rebels becoming settlers, some of them, in the Americas, colonial America, and then relations between the Scots in colonial America and the English, what Britishness meant, what being loyal meant, what being a royalist meant, relations with France, relations with Native Americans, the question of slavery in Scotland and slavery. So there's so many 
issues that raised that kind of global historical issues that if the, the novels had remained in Scotland, some of that might not have been addressed in the way that it is in the book. So it definitely spins out from the first novel and becomes European and then much more about what might say is global history or global Scottish history, to put it that way. So I think it raises lots and lots of issues that wouldn't otherwise be raised. And another big obvious difference from, say, the novels of Walter Scott would be Walter Scott was steeped in, as I've said, he was steeped in, in the history of the 16th, 17th century before he put pen to paper on a single historical novel. Diana Gabaldon came from a background of science and, and research and so on. And then this is a, a, a novel which is about time travel, where some of that maybe more likely than, than some people might expect. The world of post-war Britain, beginning post-war Scotland, and then that world of going back 200 years to just before Culloden. It's so richly rendered that you don't get, it's, in other words, you don't, you don't get spaced out by it as, it, as it as it were. So I think that's a really important thing, and that's something that Walter Scott never had. The only thing Walter Scott wrote, I think, was Red Gauntlet, which is about a, a non-existent or imaginary or imagined or fictional third Jacobite rising. So Red Gauntlet is a kind of something of a historical fantasy. I think it's a brilliant historical novel, but writing about what didn't happen, as it were, and, and also, but then trying to, at the same time, give it the authenticity and the layering and, and sediment and, uh, of truth is a really difficult thing to, to do. And for me, the strength of the Outlander novels is in the detail, and that detail is incredibly rich. Before we go any further, Willie, um, I've got a question, and I think this is perhaps something some of our listeners might be thinking as well. It's about how you engage with Outlander, bearing in mind you're coming at this from the perspective of someone who is both an academic but also a fan. So how do you balance those two things and engage with Outlander critically? First thing I would say is I notice on the inside flap of the certainly the, the paperback edition of the latest novel that I've got, Usually where you would expect to find critics, you know, what the New York Times says or what the Guardian says and so on. What you find is is fan, fan comments. And one thing I've learned, I've learned this from supervising a couple of students who worked in, the, in this kind of area is fan crit is extremely robust because fans immerse themselves in a work, whether that's music, literature, you know, whatever, theatre. They immerse themselves in it to a degree that no academic with a straight face could pretend to to do so i think with outlander fans and fandom and fan criticism is really important and i think that's everybody knows that that fans have read have been there from 1991 they've read everything they know everything and so on and fans could always keep writers on their toes talking as a fan what kind of elements really really attract you to outlander one personal thing is I find the the world, the immersion of the, and I don't want to call it, the daily world that's rendered in the, the kind of frontier, Fraser's Ridge, and go tell the bees that I'm gone, is really stunning. You feel you're there. It's, I mean, it's cinematic. It's just so, it is what I would call a cultural immersion. And you can tell that the, the research is there, but none of the lines show. And some of the other aspects of the writing, of the same in the same novel, because obviously it shifts perspective from Claire's perspective to a kind of third person. And then there's what's happened with with William and Lord John and so on. And without labouring it, I'll just say that I found the daily life as rendered painting a picture of what was possible in the 1770s in colonial America 
hunting, eating, cooking, living, making, doing, or everything, medicine. I found that to be extremely rich and rewarding. Some of the other passages, the because it's interleaved and intercut with politics, which which I think is very well handled. But that for me struck me as it was much more Walter Scott like. It was much more intrigue in politics, romance, adventure of a more familiar kind to me. And that was slightly so when I was in those, I wasn't in the doldrums, but when I was in those passages of the book, I was thinking, right, let's get back to, you know, I want to find out how you, you skin a squirrel, as it were. But so I got interested in the, as I say, the doing, the daily doing. When I dwell in the 17th century, that's what interests me. It interests me the daily life, that kind of social history the, and the political history. And I think that's what she's mm-hmm. absolutely brilliant at. Let's delve into that a little bit more. Thinking about the culture and the society and everything, what does Diana Gabaldon Scotland look like? That's quite a big question. I mean, that you, might be another episode in and of yeah, itself. I mean, I think one thing is you get a, a female perspective and you get a 20th century female perspective on the 18th century. So that's a really important part of it. And she talks about that when she began to write the books. She didn't initially envisage it being a time travel story. It was just that she had this very modern protagonist and the idea of landing them in this place and and having them have that modern perspective on the 18th century because we can't avoid it. It's a bit like when people talk about presentism when we we try to see the past exactly through through the lens and with the knowledge that we have now. That was a stroke of genius to to have that idea of writing what was essentially an extremely thoroughly researched historical novel immersed in the period but with this modern narrator who can look at, at, at things through those other eyes and see how different the past was and draw attention to all those incredible differences. And obviously there's a violence, a grittiness, a kind of dirt and, and squalor and the stuff of life that you might not get in an either in a glossy sort of type of film or where you were you were you were simply invited to enter the mid-18th century without any real knowledge of looking at that from another perspective and looking at it from a distance so I think from that point of view that was something that's that fit between the the modern female figure the doctor whose daughter is an engineer and so on so it's got it's got this very female kind of centered perspective and I think that definitely does something different to it that it could never be any of the kind of swashbuckling type adventure stories so I think that's a big difference thinking about Outlander and its relationship with Scottish history in particular how does Gabaldon navigate that? And can you maybe tell us a little bit about how the series interacts with Scottish history? That's a difficult one, because the first thing I, w- I would say is that I think Scottish history has not been well served, and that's just that's historical, if you like, and, and political too. It's not been well served. It's not been perhaps as thoroughly taught at schools as, as it would have been in an independent Scotland. It's not been as thoroughly taught as uni- universities. And that's a paradox because when, when Braveheart appeared in 1995, there was an interest in Scottish history that, that had to be met. People in OK, we're getting people interested in Scottish history who, who go to libraries and read popular books and so on. But we want to be able to, to, to direct them to you know facts and, and complexities and, and have real historians engage even if you take an issue of Scotland and slavery today, this very day, 
that debate continues and will continue and should continue because history isn't a closed book. It's open all the time. My colleague Murray Pittock has written a brilliant book about Culloden that gives a completely fresh perspective on Culloden. So we're still finding out things. There's still new material. There's new new ways of, of kind of like battlefield archaeology and so on, new ways of finding out what happened, why it happened, how it happened and what the, the aftermath of that was. And, and the same goes for slavery. Now, well, there are Scottish historians who would say, yeah, that's right, we have to wake up and examine our history. What were Scottish historians doing for the last 200 years? Why wasn't there more awareness in schools and universities of this issue then? So we talk about decolonising the, the syllabus of the curriculum or the university now, but this has been long overdue. And I think, like as people said with Braveheart, it wasn't that Braveheart itself was good history. It was the fact that it provoked and, and inspired and incited and, and enabled and triggered an interest in Scottish history much more broadly and, and indeed globally. And I think the Outlander novels and the Outlander TV series, by the same token, have drawn an interest, I mean, an interest in terms of language with the Gaelic and the Scots and so on, but definitely an interest in a period of history which was obviously pivotal, which was crucial, which had all kinds of consequences and implications, and which has got enough seeds of truth in it that people can follow up. I gave a St Andrew's talk a few years ago in Blackwater Foot and Arran, and I just looked into the fact that there were Jacobite prisoners taken after Culloden to the Americas and so on as kind of captives, but of course they then became part of the, the colonial problem, if you like, part of that. And John McGrath talked about that in the Chevy, the Stag and Black, Black Oil, the fact that Scotland's kind of settlement and loss of independence led to this migration which took with it its own difficulties its encounters with Native Americans and so on but also its complicity with slavery and, and, and such like so I think there's a lot in there that it's not that the history is all in Outlander or in, in the novels it's the fact that there's an invitation there for people to read and to educate them themselves and I think that that's really crucial. I tell a funny story because somebody once said the after scene mm-hmm. Braveheart somebody said why weren't we told this and someone else said because it isn't true. And that's part of the thing about, you know, there's, 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 a fil- there's film and there's fiction. And of course, mm-hmm. they have very complicated relations between fiction and cinema or television yeah. and history, because history is also made up of convincing stories or stories convincing mm-hmm. or stories that exclude other stories and so on. So I think from that point of view, if you take it in a more broad sense as culture, then I think we can mm-hmm. learn a lot from these different cultural forms, be they cinematic, televisual, literary, mm-hmm. poetic. We've got our own backgrounds, but Gabaldon is American. Do you feel that the novels or indeed the TV series replicate any of the sort of myths that we've got about Scotland's history and culture? I don't think so. She talks about this. She's a fantastic mm-hmm. researcher. So she had a, a career as a researcher of a, of a scientific mind before she, she wrote the, the fiction. And I think she's brought all those strains. I mean, it's, I suppose it's the question of, has it been inside or been outside that you know most? And I think she's an mm. extremely well-informed outsider. She hadn't been to Scotland before she started writing the, the novels, but she's, she managed to talk to Scots and she has learned as she got, she has gone to mm. in terms of how the Gaelic is represented, how Scots is represented. So I think research is a tremendous thing and it's a form of time travel, that kind mm. of research. You can really steep yourself. So I think without a doubt she has steeped herself in the material and the period she's listened she's learned she's had created mm-hmm. critical conversations and so on and I think that's been really important so I don't take that line I mean there, there is always a line of 
are you an outsider and what can you say as an outsider and, and so on. And people can be quite proprietorial. In a Scottish context, that's quite difficult to do because I think nobody really owns a history because the history is in large parts unwritten or unknown or, or unrecorded. So I think it's it's less of an issue. But that's in, in any way, she has, she has her own complicated, complex, rich, historical and mm-hmm. cultural background, Diana, but it's, it's how she's engaged with the material. I mean, she does talk about the fact that, you know, she watched a, a, an old episode of Doctor Who and it's one I remember being broadcast with Jamie the Highlander appearing in it sometime in 1960s, 68 or so. And, but she watched this old episode and I remember that episode vividly and thinking how amazing it was to be, you know, the, going back in time and seeing that bit, that kind of bit of Scotland, a man in a kilt, you know, appearing out of nowhere, as it were. So that was a, one of the triggers for her. And then so the idea started with a man in a kilt and she was going to write but it was a f- the female doctor being put into that that, that really was the, the, if you like, the combustion, the, the, the transformation and, and the, the, the dynamism behind the actual s- story. People will ar- would argue against this, but I would say, have, having been through the Scottish schooling system, my, my feeling mm-hmm. was that Scotland did not play a large part in the history that we were taught or told or mm-hmm. that I was taught or told and that there were always people who if as it were they learned outside of school and there were always those people who were and they, they were almost at some at certain point deemed eccentrics because they would go away to the Mitchell Library to the People's Palace or other places and they would they would they would swat up and read up and they would say did you know this and you know we're not being taught history and so on but meanwhile mm-hmm. I was down the I was away down the path of studying English literature at, at mm-hmm. university so I'd, I'd kind of stepped out of that so yeah I think it is true to say the history's not entirely known and that there are plenty of gaps and that Diana mm-hmm. Gabbard made a contribution because she's she, in a very robust, thoroughly researched, fact-interested way. I mean, it's not mm-hmm. that we are talking about novels. You can't expect mm-hmm. them to have absolute literal factual truth. But even if you take something like witchcraft, mm-hmm. the Witchcraft Act in Scotland was 1563, it was abolished in 1736. That mm-hmm. was a long time to be around. And mm-hmm. I think there's still a problem with misogyny in Scotland, a problem with misogyny. Witch hunts happen even after mm-hmm. witchcraft is outlawed and, and, and so on. There's an engagement with the supernatural mm-hmm. even after it's outlawed. I mean, Tam O'Shanter has written long after the abolition of witchcraft. Mm. So I think there's issues in Scotland that are quite large issues. And there are issues today because mm-hmm. we have people today campaigning for amnesty and pardon for witches in Scotland. That's another aspect where it's still very, very relevant. So slavery, relationship with Native American yeah. culture, which goes back through but the Buffalo Bill shows in, in, in Glasgow and so mm-hmm. on, sexual violence and, and misogyny. There's all kinds of issues there, which are today's issues. It's not that the novels are, are there to do the work that has to be done in schools and universities by readers or, or, or critics or historians and so on. Thinking about those issues, such as misogyny, witchcraft colonialism and slavery how is it the books how is it that diana gabaldon addresses them and explores them i mean how slavery is dealt with i leave that to other experts and readers of the books and the, the series to, to examine but the fact is it's not shut from and it's i believe it's historically correct to say that people who were oppressed with it in a european context whether they were irish or, or felt themselves to be oppressed mm-hmm. or minoritized or marginalized or having to leave for economic reasons and so on did get involved in the slave trade i mean scotland's involvement in the slave trade predates the union and so i think it's important to say that first of all it's not all about england mm-hmm. it's not all about britain it is about scotland and secondly that it's not there's nothing that's shied away from in fact that's one of the kind of a, mm-hmm. one of the issues around outland that people might mention is it's not often you get a series where the key main protagonists are all 
victims of sexual violence. Um, and I think that's unusual. So I think there's a lot of things that are dealt with and addressed within the, the novel that raise a lot of questions. And I think there's also the what, what can be depicted, what can't be depicted. Another little, or not a little thing, but an example of something which the mm-hmm. series had to deal with was the representation of Indigenous Americans mm-hmm. where they could, because of the a situation that arose around the fact that it's all filmed in Scotland so they couldn't get American actors or Native American actors to be part of it because of a contractual issue so they got an agreement across with First Nation Canadians to come over in a large group mm-hmm. a few years ago and, and be filming around Faskily. I believe that was the largest group of Native Americans of First Nation peoples to come to Scotland since the Iroquois mm-hmm lacrosse team of the 1860s and 1870s from Canada, the Lakota Sioux, the hostages essentially that Buffalo Bill brought with them in the 1890s. People romanticise it, but Scotland has a peculiar, distinct and complicated Mm -hmm. relationship with Native Americans. It's complicated, it's not simplistic, but it's something that has to be looked at. So there's that. The question of slavery, as I say, is still something that's been hotly debated. How much we know, how much we need to know, how far it goes back where the money went, how we follow the money, how we make companies, individuals, institutions, organisations responsible. The University of Glasgow has led the way to a certain extent with with that. So I think that's something to raise an issue as to contribute to a discussion and and a debate. You learn as you go, don't you, whether you're a writer or a critic or whatever. So I'm sure that Diana Gabaldon Mm -hmm. is aware you have input. You're not you're not in isolation writing something on your own. You're, you're constantly as a, as you do this as a researcher. You're constantly saying you're an expert. Can I check this with you? Is this right for the galley? Is this how things would be seen? Is this the the pro? And then the, that whole thing about getting the detail right. But I would just say there's a lot. There's and there's new material emerging. You know now about you know relationship with the Highlands and the sugar trade and Suriname and so on. So I think there's still a lot being found out, and that's part of history. History, as I say, mm-hmm. it isn't a closed book. It's not something we know about. It's something that we find out about every single day. Otherwise, all the historians could retire. Mm-hmm. I know I certainly wasn't aware of it, and I'm sure our listeners might be curious as well. So can you tell us a little bit more about the Canadian lacrosse team and their visit to Scotland, what happened and how it all went? I mean, they played in Liverpool and I think in London and a few other places. The mm-hmm. thing is, I've got a beautiful photograph of the team, but not while they were in Glasgow. And I don't know, I've, I've tried to look at, basically, this is where they played for people who are, who are listening to this and want to know where mm-hmm. it was. This Iroquois lacrosse team came over to introduce this game and they played at what is now the cricket ground at Peel Street. So it was in Partick, basically. And I think in the Herald, there's a brilliant recording of this. And I had an interest in this because it predates... And there's a completely different experience, if you like, from what happened with Buffalo Bill after Wounded Knee, which is mm-hmm. absolutely shameful. The lacrosse match in the Herald on May the 20th, 1876. And it's a fantastic account with details, all the names, the native names of all the players. Absolutely fantastic. Then, then an account of, of the game and what happened and mm-hmm. what the crowd learned. And that was a game that took place in Partick. I mean, people who are experts in Glasgow history know about this. Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't. So it was, it was a, a significant event at the time. It was a new sport mm-hmm. being introduced to Britain, but there was these trips to Glasgow. They also went to Dundee. I think they went to Aberdeen. And there are various reports, but without mm-hmm. pitch. So I've got, I've got the press reports on them. 
But that was 20 years and more before the Buffalo Bill. So everybody knows the Buffalo Bill story, the fact that this wild mm. show came with Annie Oakley and all that. But the fact that there was a lacrosse team 20 years earlier, mm. it's a great early piece of sporting journalism, especially as, it, as it's trying to work out mm-hmm. and explain the rules of the game. The article sets the scene, how things were set up and organised and introduced. So I think that was quite a, what I would call a happening. And that happened in Partick. That's amazing. Okay, they came and they went to other parts, but people always mm-hmm. say Buffalo Bill said this. It wasn't just flattering that there was a massive interest mm-hmm. in Glasgow and this when, when the Wild West show came. But as I say, that was quite a shameful spectacle of appropriation. Whereas this earlier event, the lacrosse match, is different. It is probably true to say that there's a there's a kind of history there. It is always worth another look. I'm sure there's a lot more that could be could mm-hmm. be uncovered, a lot more connections that mm-hmm. can be looked at. But that's part of the. And obviously the university has played mm-hmm. a big part in Outlander with the kind of setting and way that's been made and so on. So I think that's, mm-hmm. that's a significant part. What are the different connections that the university has in terms of the books and the TV series? Obviously in the summer we had summer graduations and Diana got her degree as well. That was brilliant to have her here. But obviously some of the scenes of Outlander have been set in the university and the university buildings themselves. I think the Melrose Room, definitely the Cloisters. And then locally, down into Kelvin Grove Park, there was a scene shot there, I think, mm-hmm. that was supposed to be Harvard, Massachusetts. It's had that role, so it's played a part in different ways. And then we have a Gilbert McMillan, Gilbridge McMillan in Celtic. He played mm-hmm. the part in the first season of Outlander. And I was delighted to see that mm-hmm. in the latest novel, he appears as a, as mm-hmm. a bear hunter. So... Diana does this, she puts, she'll put people that she knows into the, the novel. A former Glasgow graduate who was one of the French advisors. I think we've had we've had a good connection and with research, academic advice, and then also, in Gilbert's case, with the singing. Are you tempted to see if you end up in any of the books coming out yeah, in you, the future? Now, you know you've dragged this out of me, but <laughs> I don't want to commit her to it, because Diana said to me jokingly, she does this thing and she said, that, that, that I want to die of dysentery at the Battle of Yorkston, or did I want to be eaten by sharks off the coast of Jamaica? And the final book, I think yeah. eaten by sharks would be my preference, but probably dying of dysentery is a more likely. I don't mind not appearing mm-hmm. or appearing. I was just very entertained mm-hmm. by that idea of putting people in. The other fantastic thing, you know, I don't think this is too much of a spoiler, is the great thing about history and time travel is you can do things that other his- that historical, straight historical novelists couldn't do. And the latest novel is that Brianna brings back from the, the future, as it were, Lord of the Rings for Jamie to read. Oh. That would probably make Jamie Fraser the earliest historical reader of Tolkien. I know some of that can seem a bit gimmicky. It raises all kinds of questions as to what you can say and do in one period. It's never overdone. It's very understated. And there are whole sections of that latest mm-hmm. novel. You could just get absolutely immersed in the period. It's beautifully drawn. And as I say, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, my expertise is in the 17th. I can appreciate the work that goes into reconstructing a world of what's called world building. Mm-hmm. Fantasy is really into Outlander, but a lot of people, a lot of the engagement mm-hmm. with it, as, as you know from recent engagement, is very much mm. based on factual correctness and context and getting names right, words right. I think that larger kind of aspect of, as I say, the time travel is very important. Thinking more broadly about the different genres and things that Gabaldon plays with, you know, historical fantasy. Who do you feel Outlander is for, I suppose? Is there a specific audience? Does it, it doesn't necessarily fall into a neat category, does it? Well, one of the things she's, she said was that I think, because genre is a kind of entrapment, 
I think it's possible for books to break out of some of those. And I think that's something that's happened with Outlander. So I never think there's a kind of literary fiction, global fiction and so on, that isn't pinned down by that and restricted and reduced by that. So question of genre can probably get left behind, and I'm sure has been left behind. And mm. so writing is a thing. I mean, my, my thing is detail. I'm seduced by detail. I'm enamoured of detail. Mm-hmm. And that's what draws me. And I'm sure that's the case, whether it's costume or, you know, events, voices, mm-hmm. experiences, daily practices, cooking, all kinds of things. Whether they call it the, the glaze or gloss of authenticity or whether it's something much mm. more deep and, and embedded and something that gives them a recognition of this is how people live. I haven't watched Game of Thrones and I think mm. it's a difficult one because obviously what can be depicted, we're in, a, we're in an odd moment culturally because there's me too mm. and so on. And there's all cool questions around what can be taught, what can be represented, mm. what can be shown and so on. On the other hand, there's probably never been a more graphic depiction of violence of all kinds available yeah. on our screens to, to, and, and available at all kind of levels and forums and media than there is mm-hmm. today. So that's the paradox I wasn't drawn to Game of Thrones because I knew that it involved rape and mm. kind of violence and so on. Without Lander, I've had to live with that because I realised this is what, this is what they, as it were, Chris Tarrant would say, this is what they want or this is what Netflix mm. does or this is what, this is what audiences expect. Yeah. And I think that's part of the issue. On the other hand, there are that sexual violence as a, as a historical reality. It's a current reality. And I think that's something yeah. which has to be. So it's, it's then how you do it. What's the meaning of it? What are the processes of recovery, revenge, justice, understanding and comprehension so on that happen? I'm coming to this from a male perspective and I know women who watch Outlander that there is something very distinctive about the perspective that it gives you on, on female agency and so on quite different and quite distinctive from how these things would be represented in other kinds of uh, fiction. Mm -hmm. That's something that has been noted and commented on a great deal. And then the fact that you have, as I say, the main characters who are both in a position of having these shared traumatic experiences. It's very, very much something that's happened within their family and and across their their community. So I think that's definitely Mm -hmm. a dimension that hasn't really been dealt with as far as I'm aware and I think it does get a question of female agency and the fact that Claire's a doctor her daughter Brianna studied engineering and so on and kind of hands-on practical as Diana Gabaldon is strong women are a feature not in the stereotypical ways. How would you say that Gabaldon's heroine so Claire Brianna how would they compare to the heroines of Walter Scott for example obviously it's two very very different time periods different times of writing they would differ quite a bit, and I'm, I'm going. To, I'm going to segue into an aside here, which is Henry James liked women who triumphed over adversity, who affronted their destinies, and for that reason, he hated Thomas Hardy's Tess of the Durbervilles. He said that Tess of the Durbervilles was chock full of falsehoods or falsity, and he hated it because it showed women as they, in reality, often are defeated, disappointed, raped, destroyed blamed and so on but he didn't like that because he wanted in fiction to offer a place for his female characters to as I say triumph over adversity to find some hope among the despair that's two different men dealing with and how men in the 19th century Theodore Dreiser how men used female characters to make particular political points or to make particular arguments is one thing I think Walter Scott couldn't have created a female heroine like 
Claire Randall Fraser because she didn't exist. And I think there's something about post-war, to what extent people might say it produced those discourses and gave women a different sense of themselves. So there's something very particular that she's able to do by writing a historical novel, but told through with one of the chief narrators or chief, chief perspectives being this educated independent-minded women of the 40s, 50s and, and so on. I think the other thing is it follows the lifetime trajectories yeah. of these characters and that is really quite a thing because in that sense it's like this biography, collective biography of that period that's been covered. I mean, we're at the late 1770s and so on now from the 1740s. So I think and that at the same time you've followed, you followed that trajectory in the modern section too. So I think that's it's something quite distinctive and quite different that we would get otherwise. We didn't have the kind of writing I view that would have allowed, allowed for that. And if I say an idol of Walter Scott, of Dorothy Dunnett, might say mm-hmm. different and might find many elements of Outlander mm-hmm. already present earlier. But I think there's something absolutely distinct about Outlander. Just kind of flip it a bit. I wondered how you think Gabaldon portrays masculinity, particularly in characters such as Jamie certainly from the pop culture that I have grown up with. There's a very sort of set image, I feel, about men in kilts and Scottish men and sort of like an idea of manliness almost or masculinity. I mean, I'm a fan, remember, I'm speaking mm-hmm. of that. I'm not one of Hewan's hooligans, you know, there's a fan base for Sam Hewan. Mm-hmm. I think that is a really mm-hmm. interesting question because I saw when, when you know, when Sam Hewan and one of his co-stars did the kind of on-the-road thing and so on, one of the fans that said, oh God, you know, I didn't realise he was such mm-hmm. a dork, which was hilarious. Because I actually think within, certainly within mm-hmm. the books, there are various sides and vulnerabilities and, and there's mm-hmm. brilliant stuff about jealousy, sexual jealousy in the, in the latest novels. So I think there's more... I think there's many more sides to the Jamie Fraser character than are maybe able to be shown in the TV series. And then, of course, people see what they want to see too. I mean, I know that episode mm. nine, the first season, is very popular. And I think that story of kind of a the clear character taking the lead, showing mm-hmm. agency, being experienced, making choices, making decisions and so on, I think that's very much the drama of now. It's got the contemporaneity of our time that's been projected back into that period. So I think that changes it slightly. But then there is the whole thing of, mm-hmm. you know, the, the kilt and the muscles and the and so on. As she says herself, you know, she started with the image of a man in mm-hmm. a kilt. Let's not shy away from the fact that mm-hmm. there is something about a man in a kilt that seems to be part of that. Whether you want to call it romanticisation, glamorization, stereotype, there are all kinds of things that are going on in there. You could parcel them out and analyse them from Jamie's first appearance right through mm. books and certainly right through the, the television series. He does go older, he you know, becomes a red coat. You follow a, a story, but then there always is that sense of the big hairy Highlander aspect to it. That has a history. I mean, one of the things that occurred to me was Highlander as a great example of that. And Highlander, in some ways, is this kind of a time-travelling, fantastic kind of a romance story too. And then obviously Doctor Who, mm-hmm. the time-travelling. The mm-hmm. kilt has got that fetishised fabric, historical aspect to it and, and so mm-hmm. on. You could write, and somebody probably has written, the book of the kilt, you know. The kilt is a real phenomenon. And even in Scotland, in so many ways, the kilt has changed. A Glasgow wedding 40 years ago, you wouldn't have seen a kilt. But a Glasgow wedding now, you won't see a suit. Something has happened with the kilt and kiltedness and tartan and the plaid and so on as a kind of, if you like, a very thorough, mythologised meme that's persisted. I'm sure that remains a drawing since it was a starting point in the novels. Models of masculinity are complex. Over a period of time with that kind of epic narrative, you get the chance to give Mm -hmm. different versions of what it is to be masculine and even the kind of soldiering world, the difference between what soldiers think and what politicians who are 
supposedly directing soldiers things. Yeah. So I think all of those, these, and these are all relevant and continuing timely questions for, for us, but they're all mm-hmm. within it. But as I say, the character of Jamie Fraser is quite a kind of magnetic figure and he's certainly appealingly depicted who has sensitivities and, and is also dealing with this woman who comes from another time with the whole set of ideas and so on. Some of the conversations that they have are really fantastic. They are like kind of set pieces of Jamie and Claire talking about perspective traumas and then talking about other things that have happened that were unavoidable and so that kind of personal interaction is really definitely handled. Mm-hmm. Do you have a particular favourite moment from any of the books or any of the TV series that kind of stands out to you? I don't want to give spoilers either because there's a lot there's a lot that stand out there's two moments in that there's one at the beginning yeah. when they're doing this kind of reminiscence thing and it's I mean it reminded me of some of the things Muriel Spark does in Memento Mori and then there's a moment later they were on a break but there's a moment of sexual mm-hmm. jealousy and of the Lord John and Claire and it's a, the way that's talked through because it's talked through in this kind yeah. of scene where the, it's, it's the gloaming you know the sun's going down and it's just it's to me that's such a poignant and silkily handled conversation between two people mm. about the past so I like I like that aspect of, of memory and history and the embeddedness of that is as interesting as the larger historical shapes and mm. themes. You mentioned uh, Mural Spark there if any of our listeners are feeling particularly inspired having watched Outlander, read Outlander what would you recommend they read in terms of literature? In a Scottish context that's an interesting question because other than Prime Minister and Brodie Muriel's mm-hmm. part didn't say a lot of or work in, in Scotland. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, if I had to think about it, I would say Irvin Welsh is somebody I always mention because I think yeah. Irvin Welsh paints a picture of communities. James Kelman will take you into the heads of individuals and that's great. And it's mm-hmm. beautifully, beautifully written. But Irvin Welsh, to me, deals with t- times and processes. And even if I throw in one novel, Glue, because it's got in it a kind of urban history of what happened between mm-hmm. the 90s 60s and 1970s with new housing schemes and so on and renovation and redevelopment and so on. So I think there's always a social history with Urban Welsh. There's mm-hmm. a group of complex and differentiated and various characters. In that sense, I think Muriel Spark and Urban Welsh have a lot in common. Mm-hmm. That might surprise people. What they have in common is they deal in groups, they deal in communities, they deal with these mm-hmm. speaking in their own idioms as it were in, in, in different circumstances and they tend not to favour or privilege one particular individual mm-hmm. and I like that I like the kind of cross-cutting nature of the year's work and here I'm not talking about mm-hmm. Scottish historical novels and there's brilliant historical writers like James Robertson mm-hmm. if you're attracted to detail and you've got an interest mm-hmm. in Outlander then you could do worse than read Dickens an incredible writer of character and language mm-hmm. and so on and I know, I know that he's one of the writers that fed into Outlander when you do immerse yourself you think mm-hmm. this is a completely fine drawn Mm-hmm. world that we have that surprised me i didn't expect you to say dickens at all dickens big time yeah and i know dickens is a favorite of a lot of people mm-hmm. i didn't expect diana gabaldon to say dickens but as soon as she said it i completely got it it's a style and level and depth of representation and as i would say research dickens went into prisons to write about prisons he talked to experts on the french revolution to write a tale of two cities he was a gatherer and you can tell it's worn very lightly because it's so convincing but these mm. writers you can tell the work that has gone into the world making that they've done later this year a couple of weeks after the release of this episode we're going to be holding the outlander conference at the university what can you tell us about that what can we expect 
we were capsized by COVID in 2020, and it's now scheduled for 18th to the 22nd of July 2023. We've got a brilliant lineup of speakers and events. Our plenary speakers are Diana Gabaldon, who's going to address the conference. We've got Murray Pittock, who's written this game-changing book on Culloden. We've got Catherine Byrne from Ulster University, who works on representations of sexual violence, Me Too, in the film and and television. And then we've got Professor Sir Geoff Palmer, who's going to be speaking on Scotland and slavery, and he's really been at the forefront Mm -hmm. of the public debate and and stimulating much more honest and open debate on slavery and Scotland's legacy. Got those brilliant plenaries lined up. And obviously we'll have papers and panels on fantasy, on witchcraft, on medicine and all the other aspects that are covered and raised in the novels. So I'm really excited about that and looking forward to it. I should just mention one other thing. I scribbled down a note five years ago at the edge of my desk saying, Mm -hmm. Outlander, my wife nudged me, don't forget that you've made that note of doing something about Mm -hmm. Outlander. My then head of school, Professor Alice Jenkins, was remarkably Mm -hmm. supportive. When I mentioned it to her as something that I thought she would just say, Never mind Outlander, get your research done. She just instantly saw it as a, a great idea and she was extremely supportive. And that's my head of school administration just now, Marie Meekin, the same, and Lisa Kelly that I've been collaborating with. So we've got a fantastic group together. Well, what an amazing lineup of plenary speakers alone. I'm really looking forward to this. I think it's going to be brilliant. It's a fantastic opportunity to have, as I say, a great gathering. I was wanting to have a Highland Charge in Kelvingrove Park, but I think yeah. that might not be logistically possible I'm willing to wear my kilt and charge down that hill so we'll see I might be on my own sure we can gather up some other people to join you oh yeah it's a lot better than dying of dysentery or being eaten by sharks (laughs) definitely you can't go wrong is there anything that you've got planned outlander wise beyond the conference I'd like to write something on the Native American First Nation Mm -hmm. side I've definitely got an interest in doing that I've written a short piece mm-hmm. for a, an online journal called Historical Novel about Outlander, basically mm. being about the, the fiction, although I touch on the, the TV series. It's hard to re- separate them, and especially since the fan base has kind of converged and overlapped. With, mm-hmm. So there are some people who have only seen the, the, the adaptation and other people who mm-hmm. have read all the novels and will have also seen that, and they'll mm-hmm. have, have all their arguments and, and debates. And at some point, I definitely like to write something about fan criticism to become more of an interest, and I think there's a mm-hmm. lot to be done and engaging with mm-hmm. the kinds of expertise, the kinds of interdisciplinarity and the kinds of scholarship these fans or independent scholars mm-hmm. are doing. So that's why I was delighted to see the latest novel having those endorsements. I've never seen a book with that before, you know, even on books that have got, say, quite the big, heavy fan culture around them. Readers that matter. Definitely. <laughs> And those that really engage, I think readers are so vital. That's why a lot mm-hmm. of authors very much appreciate. I mean, Stephen King mm-hmm. called constant readers. I'm one of his constant readers too. Mm-hmm. So I think when you have somebody who's a real enthusiast, nobody's more critical mm-hmm. than a fan. They're not owned. <laughs> and they spot things. They, they will home in on things that they think are inconsistencies or that, or that please them, you know. We're coming up to the final book in the Outlander series. How do you feel about that? How do you feel about the series ending? Everything must end. I mean, remember Friends, (laughs) Shakespeare, Mm -hmm. everything ends. So I think there has to be, and this is in the final novel in in any case. So we're about to see the penultimate outlander. You have to be sanguine as a penguin and say, there's always a sadness. All good things must come to an end and they'll always be there to be revisited. And that's the important thing. And then studied, because I I would like to see an outlander studies. Mm -hmm. Do you think that there'll be any other fiction that's inspired by outlander and we'll see more set within that time period? I'm sure there will be, and I'm sure there will also be a revival of interest. Mm. I mean, 
Diana has just done the introduction, I think, for a new edition of Rob Roy. I think there will be mm-hmm. a rekindling of interest. It's always been one of Scotland's great strengths is the historical novel. Mm. We invented the historical novel and we have some of the greatest historical mm. novels in, in history. This amazing series of novels set in Scotland. Mm-hmm. That's part of what I said about fan lit. I'm sure there will be mm. you know, looking at that and saying, this is something we'd like to explore. And I think historical fiction mm-hmm. is very highly regarded in, in, in sophisticated mm-hmm. forms. So I think there will be a, an interest in that. There's been great stuff recently around poetry, where people are writing. I mean, it's been done for a long time, but now mm-hmm. I think we're seeing poets engaging with 17th and 18th century history as their source material for a sequence of, or, or series of poems. So dramatically, poetically, novelistically, there might be more. And I think that kind of critical engagement with the past is a very good thing. Thanks again to Professor Willie Maley for joining us today and sharing his love of all things Outlander. Stay tuned for more information about the upcoming academic Outlander conference at the University of Glasgow. If you are feeling inspired and want to check out Willie's recent article for the Historical Novel Society, we will include a link to that in our show notes. See you next time. Thanks for listening to the Stories from Glasgow podcast. You can keep up to date with everything that's going on in the College of Arts, as well as find out about new episodes of the podcast by following us on social media at U of G Arts or by visiting www.gla.ac.uk forward slash arts. This episode was produced by Sia Jackson. Music is Notion by Coma Media. See you next time.